Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to one field, and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you shiny man? Hello there, you're very welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast with Owen McDevitt and my colleague and friend Ken Early. Hi Ken. Hi Owen, how are you? I'm good Ken. Well, I'm, I'm alright. I'm always a little bit slow to buy into the hype around Tottenham Hotspur. You know this. Oh yeah. I, I, I never go too far in the day Ken, without warning people not to get too seduced by the glamour of that particular North London club. They are one of those clubs that seem to attract a lot of excitement anytime they look like they're about to do anything half decent. Going back to Gaza's time, the Aussie Ardiles dream team. Mm-hmm. And was that team actually that good? Leaked a lot of goals. <laughs> <laughs> they leaked a few goals. The 2006 side that was laid low by a bit of food poisoning. The lasagna. A critical juncture. Was it lasagna? Yeah. Last year, obviously, was, would you call it a title choke? They certainly didn't see it home when they had a... a a little bit. They didn't put the squeeze on Leicester when they could have, um, in particular, for in that game against no, they were, Chelsea. They were unfortunate to play a rather better version of Chelsea than the one that Leicester had beaten. <laughs> Slightly more fired up. Yeah. And even this season, there's a little too much praise heading their direction, considering they're doing some of the kind of stuff they've done before, picking off all these wins when there's no title at stake. Yeah. It looks as though it's already gone. That said, Kent, that said, I am getting more and more impressed by one of their players this season. Who is... We bigged him up in the World Service last week. Deli Ali. Another screamer at the weekend. Deli Ali. I, I keep forgetting how young this guy is. Yeah. This could be another Freddie Adu situation. Well, except, <laughs> no, it's not. No, Owen. Well, it's not a Freddie Adu. Go no, on. Why, why do you think that? Because it, just in terms of a guy thinking, thinking about a play, Every time you hear Freddie, Freddie Adu, you assume that he was... This is when he was still a figure in national football, uh, international football before it turned out that it was uh, built on sand a little bit. But it was always, Freddie Do, still only 15. It's like, what? You know, <laughs> I've been hearing about this guy since he was about 10. I don't mean in terms of what will happen in the career. Already you could argue, Ken, that Deli Ali has a better career than, <laughs> than Freddie well, Do. He certainly does yeah. already have a better career. So he's 20 years of age. He turns 21 tomorrow. Yeah. Forget about the Freddie Do thing. That's a digression I didn't need to go on. I need to bring you back here to a report by Sachin Nakrani for The Guardian yeah. from the game yesterday. Um, 
He is now, this is Ali, he now has had a hand in as many Premier League goals before turning 21 as Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard and David Beckham combined. Yes. So he's got 40 goals or assists in the Premier League. Mar- Mauricio Pochettino's uh, response upon being informed of this comparison. Wow, that's unbelievable. And I would say so too, because you're not exactly, well, maybe Lampard was a bit of a slow developer in that it took him until he went to Chelsea to, to flourish. But those other two guys were quite young and quite good at quite a young age. So for him to have more than the three of them together, it's pretty astonishing. He's, a pretty, he's an incredibly accomplished player for somebody who's only turning 21 tomorrow. Yeah, he's he's totally ridiculous. Um, what what's really amazing about him is the is the range of things that he can do so well. I mean, there isn't really anything that you look at that he's that he's not really good at, apart from tackling, which he's one of those over exuberant, you know, violent and ill-disciplined tacklers. Uh, which even even that Mauricio Pochettino sees as kind of a good thing. Uh, I mean, not not quite to the extent of Graham Souness, who pretty much every time Derek Deliadi commits a bad foul, says that's one of the best things about him as a footballer. <laughs> Just the way that he launches himself, studs first into opponents. Um, but uh, and I remember Daniel Harris last week. We were talking to Daniel and Miguel Delaney about a range of topics, but including uh, Ali. And his only gripe with him is that he needs to do more. He needs to impose his personality on games a little bit more than he does. He he feels that he's still does spectacular things without necessarily being the fulcrum. But I think he's becoming more and more that. And in particular, he's becoming more and more the fulcrum in the absence of Harry Kane. So Harry Kane comes off the bench and smashes one off the bar mm. at the weekend. And you're thinking, you forgot not that I forgot Harry Kane was there, but they've been so good without him and Ali has carried the can without him. It's it's easy enough to be a good creative attacking player when Harry Kane is your foil. Yeah. When it's your man whose name I've now forgotten Vincent Janssen Vincent Janssen it's your and you're, man when, Vin, when Vincent Janssen <laughs> is your is your your attacking foil and you're still scoring and creating goals then you're doing pretty well yeah um, he, he it's it's unbelievable how good he is I mean Pochettino speaking about him uh, says that he treats him like a son which is to say how do you imagine Pochettino t- treats his sons warmly and never scolding them no, I won't as it happens. Oh, he does call them from time to time and puts them on the... Friendly, there. lovely, but tough too. <laughs> when you have a son, you love him, but sometimes you have to be tough. Uh, but did, did talk about Ali uh, um, talking about his... This, the character is perfect for a player. When you're winning and you feel that to lose on the pitch is like losing your life, those are the qualities we want in a player. <laughs> he needs love, uh, but also we need to be tough. So he has to be a totally abnormal human being, basically. Yes, to be... To be totally crazy. Um, Attach absolutely undue importance to his profession. A 100% warped view <laughs> of, of priorities in life. These are the things that are important in, uh, in top footballers. You know, I mean, um, who, it's a kind of irrational uh, drive, which is, it seems to be absent from a lot. I mean, it's sort of people blame it on the academy system, you know. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's the way that people always look at, younger people and say, oh, these young people are soft. They don't understand what it is to work. They don't understand what it was like in my day, etc." cetera. Um, I don't know if necessarily you can um, put it down to these systemic factors. Life is too soft. These kids don't know what it is to struggle. They just play computer games all the time and eat sugary snacks. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I think uh, 
it's it's actually something which is more individual than that. I mean, you see plenty of players who who. I mean, you see a lot of players coming up in similar backgrounds and somehow only one of them has this massively distorted view of the world, which is so helpful on the football field. (laughs) You know, it's not like... uh, I mean, the the difference between Luis Suarez and Sergio Aguero, you know, similar similar type of background... Only one of them is a lunatic. You know what I mean? Is it is is it because of the background or is it because of the person? We're going to be talking about Bayern Munich, who warmed up for their Champions League game this week with Real Madrid with a big win over Borussia Dortmund with Rafael Honigstein and Barcelona. Well, they might have blown their shot at the title with a defeat against Malaga. Dermot Cargan is going to be on about that one in a little while. Right now, I think Ken is probably going to report on some sport. Right, Ken. Um, speaking of uh, Suarez, actually, uh, he was losing to uh, Malaga over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sandro Ramirez, a former Barcelona player, scoring a goal for Malaga uh, and celebrating to celebrating in a way that annoyed Luis Suarez. Uh, he thought that he would do a bit of a bit like Jose Mourinho and Conte earlier in the season. Uh, he would go and and give a little life lesson to the young man, grabbed him uh, around the neck and was seen to whisper toothily into his ear in such a way that was that was uh, picked up by all the cameras. Don't forget who fed you. <laughs> don't, don't forget who fed you. He celebrated too much because he scored against his own club, Barcelona. And this, this was... Uh, Suarez is one of those who thinks uh, poor, poor form. Suarez is a non-celebration celebration man. Yeah. Apparently. Haven't seen him uh, score against one of his former clubs yet. We'll see if he keeps the <laughs> lid on it. Uh, In your face, PSV. Maybe we'll see. He never played for PSV, you know? He was an Ajax man. Ajax. Oh, no. Ajax and before that, Groningen. Um, but we will, the place, yeah. we'll talk about them a bit later because really their, their league form is very uh, patchy and everything about them suggests that they may be about to get knocked out of the Champions League by Juventus this week. That said, you know, difficult to bet against this team that contains so many of the best players in the world. Um, they have a way of of um, proving quite resilient in that competition. So, uh, yeah, we'll get to that in a bit with Dermot. But for now, Owen, let's talk about a very different um, part of the game, the European game. Let's go to the northeast of England and dwell on Sunderland for a little while. David Moyes is honestly... Such a loser at this point on. I can't. It, it's it's difficult really to almost get your head around what a loser David Moyes has has become. This man was uh, if he if only he had stayed at Everton. You know who knows who knows what what the situation might be now. I guess maybe things were were beginning to go a little bit stale at Everton when he left there as well. There was this bit of a sense of oh, is this all there is? He'd is, be an Arsene Wenger figure now if he was at Everton still. He could well, he could well be. You know where where are the trophies? Where is the excitement? Why are we always sixth in the league? Or <laughs> you know, is fifth the the best that can be? Is this all there is? Um, and he moved to Manchester United. And when you look at where he is now, he was so he's such a damaged figure. In, in sporting terms, in professional terms, I wonder if this is... I wonder how he's going to get another job after this. Sunderland. And I say I wonder how he's going to get another job after this, a job which he still has. Because if I was the Sunderland's owner, Ellis Short, I have to say I find it very difficult to see the logic in keeping him on as manager 
when they get relegated this season, which they will. Because I, I'm looking at Sunderland at the moment and thinking, if this team goes down, it's going to stay down. This doesn't look like a team that's actually good enough to win the championship. They have a kind of an aging squad. They don't seem to have any ideas in terms of, you know, people to bring in. And they're managed by a guy who, well, currently managed by a guy who, well, it's, just, it's incredible. Let's just listen to some of the things that David Moyes has been saying. This is a team that's failed to score oh, after losing to Manchester United in 11 out of the last 13 uh, matches. It's an extraordinary run of results. Um, Burnley 2, Sunderland 0. No, hang on. Sunderland 0, Burnley 0. Sunderland 1, Stoke 3, so at least they got a goal. Burnley 2, Sunderland 0. West Brom 2, Sunderland 0. Sunderland 0, Tottenham 0. Palace 0, Sunderland 4. That was a weird one. No one was quite sure Sorry. what happened there. It was, it was like 4-0 at halftime. You know, that wasn't... <laughs> of a halftime rocket for Crystal Palace. <laughs> uh, Sunderland nil, Southampton four, Everton two, Sunderland nil, Sunderland nil, Man City two, Sunderland nil, Burnley nil, Watford one, Sunderland nil, Leicester two, Sunderland nil, Sunderland nil, Manchester United three. What a run. Um, Moyes before this game uh, was saying some optimistic things. He said, I'm looking forward to winning trophies and being successful again. I hope the best is still to come from me, said Moyes. This season's been particularly difficult because over the years I've become one of those managers with a really high win rate. And suddenly I've been losing all the time. Uh, in all my years, I've never been used to losing games almost every week. You can't believe you've gone from having one of the best win rates in Premier League history to being down at the bottom. Um, he hopes the best is still to come. Uh, but but will it come at Sunderland? I mean, it's hard to see that happening because Sunderland, according to David Moyes, is the hardest job in the world. Now, I seem to remember him saying the Manchester United job was very difficult as well. Difficult in a different way, I suppose. But Moyes says, I just feel from right from day one, this is before the game, remember, I was totally realistic. Maybe that's not what everyone wants to hear nowadays, though. Like, go to come in and be... Really realistic. What was it that he was? How realistic was he right from the start? Well, at his first press conference at Sunderland, uh, you know, last summer, he uh, basically announced that he had not taken the Sunderland job when it was up. They offered him the job when they ultimately gave the job to Sam Allardyce. He didn't take the job. Uh, and he said at his first press conference when he was taking the job, the main reason was because I didn't think they could stay up. <laughs> but Sam did. Was amazing. This is that. That was like his first, his first press conference. I didn't take this job because I didn't think he could do it. The problem with David Moyes is that he he had now taken the job and he still didn't think they could do it. And this became really obvious as the season went on. Well, as the press conference went on, I would take fourth from bottom this season if I felt I had brought players in who would help give us a backbone. <laughs> We're even lower on numbers than in May. We need to get players to improve. At the moment, we don't have competition for places. So that's day one. But that's him also trying to fire a little bit of a rocket at the owner, which I don't think was particularly successful. <laughs> no. No, it's not. It's just not the right tone to take. In, you know, when, when you're in your first press conference. First press conference is a day for optimism. You know? It's a day for the sky is the limit for this club. You know, what a great club this is. And so on and so forth. It's not like I didn't take the job because I, you know, uh, I thought you, you couldn't possibly stay up. And looking at the squad, I still don't. <laughs> I still don't think you can. Uh, in December, David Moyes had evolved. Managing Sunderland always had an appeal to me. 
But if I'd known about the financial situation, I'd have needed to look at it in a different way. This is halfway through the season. He's, he's saying, I wouldn't have taken the job if I'd known how, how busted this club was financially. Um, I'd have had to think a lot more about taking this job. I didn't see us having no money in January. I'm disappointed I won't be able to do some work in January and build on what we've done so far. Um, that's probably what I'd say is the difficulty. Uh, they lose 4-1 to Burnley in December. Moyes explains that it wasn't his fault. My players were well briefed on the opposition. You just have to hope they take that into the game, which I guess they they didn't. Uh, the players have to take responsibility as well as me. That was dire, as bad as anything I've been involved in. I can't walk into the dressing room and say, yeah, that was great, lads. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> just lost 4-1 to, uh, to Burnley. January, uh, it's time to try and bring players into Sunderland. We'll see what we can do. It's difficult. It will be even it will even be difficult to attract the players. We need to say, we need you. Uh Sunderland are one of the richest clubs in the world, by the way. This is what's this is what's so amazing about it. It talks about how it's so difficult to attract players to Sunderland. Sunderland are actually really a well off club. They're not well off necessarily compared to other Premier League clubs, but compared to most clubs in the world, Sunderland have got a great deal of money. But if they don't want to spend that money as they apparently don't. But how much money do we need to spend? I mean, the, the David Moyes keeps talking about British players. I want British players with, champ- with uh, Premier League experience. Well, be prepared to pay the yeah. biggest prices in the world. You know, because if, you, if you're actually going to survive, then you, then you sign... They're exactly the kind of players that you can't sign. You don't have the money to sign them. So, do a, so take a leaf out of someone's book, who I'm sure you, you know, you're impressed by certain aspects of his work, your predecessor, Sam Allardyce. You know, his strategy is not to sign... I, I want British players with champions with Premier League experience. No, he signs foreign players largely, and uh, they, you know some of them. A lot of them turn out to be decent, and you know suddenly you've got a you, you know you're you're beating relegation. Um, uh, in March, Sunderland went off to New York City on a holiday, just after they lost four 0 to Southampton, um, uh, and when they came back. Uh, the club sacked a load of people. Sacked, sorry, the club. So basically, yes, the players went to to, to Manhattan, had a swell time. <clears throat> Everyone could see them having this great holiday in New York. Moyes said it was because he'd cancelled the Christmas party and wanted to give the players something back uh, because all they'd had, all we had was a night out with the wives. Said Moyes, I gave them nothing because I didn't think it was right. This is a, at Christmas, but I did tell them the right time we'd get a break. Um, uh, he says uh, the fault was that we needed to beat Southampton instead they lost 4-0 we didn't perform that had more to do with inconsistency in our football rather than when we booked uh, the trip <laughs> uh, but they came, they came back and and uh, uh, shortly afterwards uh, they, the club was making staff redundant um, and obviously people were looking at the you know the sort of sex in the city pictures from Manhattan and going where are this club's priorities at you know what I mean? Why are they spending all this money on this on this tour for you know this first class tour for the players? Um, Moyes said you can't connect the trip and the job losses. That would be wrong. It was a realignment that Martin Bain had planned. You should probably look at how mistakes have been made and how we got to this stage. They have not all lost their jobs. It's a consultation period. I feel so- sad and sorry for the people, especially in this region. Um, yeah, 
I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I don't think it was necessarily a good idea to go on the trip. Anyway, the trip failed to sort of spark the... Um, failed to sort of spark it wasn't a good idea to go on the trip while this was going on in the background, while, this, while these people were being let go. Well, it's not a good idea to go on a trip generally. Yeah, I mean, the they, they haven't scored a goal since the trip. So it didn't seem to have jolted them into any kind of uh, action. Uh, it, it certainly, I don't think, was was so well-timed. You know, we, we've got money to spend on certain things, but not on other things. However, David Moises feels sorry. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And then, you know, um, obviously they lose again to, uh, to Manchester United. We need to give the supporters and everybody here that little bit of hope. Scoring goals is a problem, but no, I don't think the players have accepted relegation. Uh, staying up would be a good achievement. Other managers have done it here, but my task might be slightly harder. Well, isn't it always? Well, it is now. They're 10 points off the 17th place team for Hull City. I mean, it's you know, you almost feel, in, in a way, that David Moyes is... Um, his kind of whole demeanour around around this situation is so is kind of so pathetic in the in the true meaning of that word. I mean, sort of, uh, uh, it's it's the kind of spectacle that arouses pity. Mm. You know that you feel you're kind of you're almost bullying him to to be pointing this out. But this is just a stunning, a stunning sequence of defeatist, uh, miserablest statements, which has ended up pretty much getting exactly. Things have unfolded exactly as to his expectations. You know, he he was pretty dubious about whether they can stay up, and they've proved his suspicions were well founded. But it's just not the attitude that that really somebody in his position needs. I don't know about this. What you said at the start, though, that he'll struggle to get another job. It 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 always depends as a manager, or I guess in, in a lot of professions, as to what you're willing to accept. But he is a big name manager who's on that little wheel that goes around and. Somebody picks a manager off it from some club, maybe a decent championship club, which is a jo- job he would have to accept if he's going to be getting a team relegated this year. He might have to accept it. It's a long fall from Manchester United to insert championship club here, but that's but somebody will offer him a job. Yeah, probably. I, I guess so because just because he's a familiar face, I mean, he is a familiar downcast face. I'm not necessarily saying this is the right this is the right way to do business, but this is the way it is in the Premier League. There are a lot of these managers who just stick around without always sometimes without often being very successful. What do they call it? The availability heuristic. Mm-hmm. You uh you're a chairman and you you know, you need to hire someone for a job and who do you immediately think of? Pards, you know. Do people still think of curbs? No, probably not. It used to be curbs. It used to be curbs. See even these things, you know, they come to an end. You know, Alan Kirbishley, who could have thought Alan Kirbishley would be this long out of the game? You know, Kirbishley actually had, a, had maybe in some respects a similar sort of trajectory as Moyes. Rather, you know, he didn't have the, um, you know, the real big time job, you know, as Moyes went to Manchester United. Um, but West Ham was kind of a, it, it was more the same, the, the stability at Charlton, doing really well, kind of a local legend. Uh, then decides to go for West Ham. West Ham at that time were on a, a, a spending binge. They had, they suddenly decided, we've got all this money from Iceland. Iceland is the world's most modern economy. Uh, we've got uh, you know billionaires from Iceland. This is rock solid. Bought a lot of players like Lundberg and so on. Had curbs in, and obviously it didn't it didn't work out. But you know since then he's he's found it pretty difficult to get. 
to get back. I, I'm, I'm wondering if David Moyes has got to this point. I mean, Mourinho, I don't think, was... Mourinho's comments after the game, this is accurate um, from Mourinho, uh, but he said it was an important win and a solid performance against a team that is sad. <laughs> he said, when you play against a team that is sad, if you score first, the game is almost over because it's difficult for them to react. You could feel that negative feeling that is around a team that is close to relegation. So Sad, pathetic, Sunderland. Mourinho came in and he said, I'm familiar with this stench of fear that, that hangs over this place. You know, I actually f- detected the first hmm, half an hour away on the motorway. I could, I could smell this pall of fear that's, that's drifted up over this state from the rotting carcass of this club. And I was pretty confident about getting the three points. Uh, and so they did. And of course, their job was made a little bit easier in the first half by the sending off of Sebastian Larson for a high tackle. Proper order. I mean... Uh, you know, you could look at it as, as David Moyes did and, and describe it as never ascending off. But I think it's exactly the kind of never ascending off that needs to be, needs to happen many times. I thought you might. I thought this might have been in your particular wheelhouse game. Of course. Well, I have no choice really on having, having laid all my cards on the table. If I was now to consistency dictates that in order to keep agreeing with myself I have to say yes that was a red card even though when we see the replays of the challenge it doesn't really look like a red card at all however we don't get to see replays the referee certainly doesn't get to see replays all he sees is a raised foot I mean you could see Larson who by the way I've never seen so angry as in the aftermath of this red card it's the angriest I've ever seen him on a football field certainly he was a lot more angry after seeing the red card than he was when he was trying to get the ball in the action that got him the red card. But, you know, you could see Pogba. He was talking to Pogba. Pogba seems to be trying to be sympathetic, sort of calm him down. Sorry, dude. But he Pogba mimes the motion. You know, you, you did have your studs up. Like, you know, you put, he, he put his studs out. It wasn't like horizontal out straight leg, but it was raised studs kind of chopping down towards the shin. And it looks like that. You know, everybody saw it. The referee saw it, and the referee's like, okay, I've got to send him off. And I think that's good because I want to see if Sebastian Larson ever gets sent off for that type of foul again. You know, that's, I mean, we can only really uh, judge this at the end of Sebastian Larson's career. After, you know, he was, uh, you know, it's like, it's like when you get a, um, when you're trying to house train a puppy or whatever. You know, sometimes you got to rub their nose. Well, do, do people do that? I've never actually done I it. I don't have a puppy. I don't know. I've never, I've never done it. I've never done I it. I know you're a cat man. Maybe that's considered barbaric now. And to be honest, it sounds barbaric. But sometimes, you know, you have to, someone has to be confronted with the consequences of foolish behavior. You know, if you make, are you going to make the same mistake twice? Is Sebastian Larson going to get sent off any more times for any more violence? Uh, or apparently violent studs up challenges. I would say probably not. What else was Jose Mourinho saying after? Um, Did, any Luke Shaw talk? Is oh, yeah. Well, the, well, the Luke, Luke Shaw, Shaw situation just got so weird. Mourinho is just having... He's just messing with his mind now and appears to be kind of enjoying it. And Luke Shaw is walking this tightrope now of decent performances. Well, I mean, he's played well now in the, in the two matches that Mourinho's unexpectedly put him in there for. Um... What what Shaw said, or what Mourinho said, rather, he played really well, played solid. Solid is obviously exactly what Mourinho likes to see from a fullback. The opposition was not creating big problems, but he was confident with the ball, went forward with some danger. He was reading the game well. It was a good hour for him. I thought about taking him off at halftime <laughs> because he'd been booked and I need to be sure he'd be available for the next game, but then I thought that would be too harsh. 
So it's kind of like, oh, okay, that was that's good, I suppose. I mean, he basically said Shaw played well in a, in a terrible game. <laughs> I don't even really consider the opposition to have been opposition, um, but you know, decent. And it's and it's like, okay, well, where do I where does Shaw stand really? You know, how many how many mistakes does he have to make before he gets cast back down to? where he was last this time last week. You saw Mourinho very pointedly when he was taking him off, have a word, which I can only assume was well played. I just had to take you off because of the yellow, which I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure Shaw took in good grace. See, there, I, I feel there's a lot of pressure on Shaw because, you know, uh, resulting from this situation. It's kind of like, it's like you see the way Mkhitaryan scored a goal, very Mkhitaryan-like, didn't seem to be much on, uh, nice piece of skill, nice finish. He scored a goal. You know, he was one of the players who was left out for the last game and and Mourinho was complaining about him and other players afterwards. Oh, how many goals have these guys scored? You know, not not many, not enough. And it's kind of like one bad game sort of leads to that type of criticism. You know what I mean? It's not, you don't, I think it's difficult for those players to feel any real sense of trust. Like if you're Luke Shaw, do you trust, do you trust Jose Mourinho? I mean, you saw his, his, pre, uh, his, uh, he came out last week and had some show I'm talking about here and had some quotes about how determined he was to fight for the manager and you know all of this you, you can imagine it having been scripted for him you know he delivered exactly the message that Mourinho I think would have, would have wanted his player to see you know oh totally behind the manager what a great manager he's teaching me so much the fans are amazing I can't wait to get out on the field and represent this great club you know all that that kind of stuff so maybe maybe Mourinho was kind of rewarding that behavior a little bit with some with some game time. But if you're Shaw, you're thinking, I really can't put a foot wrong here. And while Mourinho's idea is obviously that's that's how I want them to be feeling. I want them to be feeling that sort of tension, that like real desperation to impress. He thinks that's what gets the best types of performances out of the players. I'm not sure if that's really true. I think actually players sometimes benefit from feeling a little bit more trust. Well, the more than we were talking about earlier on, the difference between Suarez and Aguero, uh, every footballer is different. It's yeah. this one-size-fits-all idea of confrontational management, I think as was referred to on the podcast last week, is just a bit outdated, really. Yeah. You've know, you got to find, find a way to connect with these young men. <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not always going out in the media and telling them, and implying, not implying, telling the world that they're useless, <laughs> or when they are good, it's because of, it's because they were playing with your brain. Um, speaking of which, actually, Schneiderlin, the former Manchester United player, a guy that you, I mean, Schneiderlin is, is speaking about a, a former manager of his at Manchester United. You might have thought, oh, is he going to say something about the way that Mourinho never really used them? No, uh, he says instead, the first year with Louis Van Gaal sticks in my throat a bit. I didn't enjoy myself at all on the pitch. He left me very freedom, very little freedom in my game. Uh, with him, I had the impression of playing like a robot. I was told, you must never go and look for the ball in this area of the pitch. You must not do this. You must not do that. These instructions perhaps disturbed me a little bit. When a player asks himself during a game, but what does the coach want me to do in this situation? He starts to perform less well, especially at Manchester United in a context where all the matches are scrutinized by the media where you can quickly quickly be criticised from everywhere. Well, it sort of is on the player to do 
what the, what coach, the coach wants, wants to do. But that should be made clearer in training during the week, I would have thought. Mm. So that it's, it's slightly more unconscious by the time you get to Saturday. It is a problem if it's not being communicated well enough or if the player isn't taking the instruction on board and he's just having to think for three or four seconds it's every a, time he doesn't. It sounds to me like he really just hasn't learned the pattern of play well enough. Mm. You know, if he's if he's kind of indecisive or second-guessing himself at moments, oh, shit, you know, then it then basically he hasn't got the grips of what he's supposed to be doing. Is it really Louis van Gaal's fault? I mean, this is a criticism that a lot of players do make of van Gaal. Uh, and I think he sometimes doesn't appreciate how egotistical their outlook can be. You know what I mean? He kind of, he almost, I think he almost sometimes imagines that players look at it some somewhat the way that he does. You know, a man in his mid-60s with a lot of experience and a kind of a collective focus which is not to say Van Hal himself isn't isn't also quite egotistical in his own way, but you know, I think the the idea of the team is the most important thing, and if we all work together, some some of us in self sacrificing roles, but if we all work together, then that's obviously the best way for us to do it. Then you know, obviously it's logical that we will do that. Yeah, uh, it's not necessarily the way that footballers in their twenties who are insecure about their position and you know insecure about being left out of the team. It's not the way they look at it at all. Um, so yeah it's a problem for Van Hal but also for, for Schneider you wanted to bring a new documentary to our attention I believe well this is a thing that's uh, on Netflix now It's I mean it's it's been out a while but um, uh, in terms of if you don't speak French which I don't um, there is now a, you know it's, it's a subtitle version on Netflix uh, Les Bleus Une autre histoire de France meaning the Blues, another story, or maybe history, of France, 1996 to 2016. So, actually watching it, I thought, wow, I can't believe, I can't believe nobody made the, thought of making this before. This is amazing. It's actually a really, really good uh, football film. Um, and it kind of, when you, when you sort of watch it, I mean, I, I've, I've been sort of following the team to a greater or lesser extent for that entire 20-year period. But it's only when you sort of see it, <laughs> you, how much crazy stuff has happened with the French national team. Good and bad. Oh, it's crazy. It must be the most nerve-shredding team in Europe to play for. There is no team that finds itself used in such a way by the country that it represents to represent everything good and bad that the country feels about itself at any given moment. It's just incredible how, they, how much they project onto this team. And they've sort of been doing it in in so many ways from the <clears throat> from the beginning, you know. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, they you know the the team that won the World Cup, um, uh, which was turned into this kind of uh, uh, you know liberal myth, uh, uh, the black blanc bleu. Uh, here we all are, uh, Frenchmen of all colors, uh, of all creeds, of all origins, coming together and winning the World Cup and showing that we can be a unified society and so on and so forth which I mean the documentary kind of shows how that uh, was like a really powerful myth in France for you know three years from 1998 to 2001 and the thing I mean I remember watching the Euro 2000 uh, which was an incredible international tournament I mean I'd say the best international tournament that I can remember in any real clear detail France won that and looked like you know, what an amazing team they had. They had so many players sort of coming through. Uh, you kind of wondered what could possibly derail this team. They had absolutely everything. 
um, they had like this figure in Zidane who was like just an archetypal French sort of genius legend figure. You know what I mean? Mm. Like the kind of the kind of player that France, uh, if France was to identify what type of what type of player would we be if we were a player? They would want they would want to be Zinedine Zidane. He's just got all those types of virtues, um, but also. You know, they had they had more, they had quicker, stronger players than everybody. They had more players. Their youth system was better than anybody's. You could you kind of wondered what can possibly derail this thing, and what the documentary actually points to is September 11th. Um, it starts the sort of second part by showing the the September 11th attacks, and then uh, just after this, France against Algeria at the Stade de France, uh, a game which, in the circumstances, they didn't really want to go or the the French Football Federation didn't know if we should go ahead, if they should go ahead with the game. But the sports minister was like, absolutely, we must play this game. And Lillian Turam actually when the play, was, was keen for the game to happen as well. The game turned out to be a, a disaster. The match is abandoned after pitch invasion. Uh, the Algerian fans, boo, the French anthem, like, you know, attacks Zinedine Zidane, you know, as a traitor. You know, Zidane has been this, uh, obviously his parents are from Algeria. Uh, but he's playing for France, and the Algerian fans are really giving him a hard time. And and this then sort of caused the t- all of these fault lines to sort of become. The, the, what I'm saying is that the that fault lines are read into the team, which beforehand it was like, oh look at the French team, they are the great ambassadors for France. That this is the idea of France in the future, you know, the, a positive vision of what France can be. After that game, it suddenly became, oh look at our team, it's divided into cliques, you know. Uh, the white players don't talk to the black players, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then it became, you know, when the when this crazy stuff was happening at the World Cup in 2010, it's like, oh, the, the ghetto scum uh, in the in the French team. You know, it's it's just amazing. It doesn't really matter what was going on in the actual team. It always, always what people said was happening about it reflected the, the ongoing obsessions in French national life, uh, which didn't necessarily have anything to do with football. They did the 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 last part of it is like you know the, the last kind of act is uh, unity, following the team to Euro 2016 and the final. And when they say unity, it's really just so they can have a nice narrative structure there, <laughs> you know, where it begins well, goes through a crisis, <laughs> and then comes back, you know, with a, in a happy ending. Because it just didn't really. I mean, I was there for Euro 2016, and it did not seem. The way that they're trying to make it look in this video, you know, oh, the whole country came together again around Les Bleus, you know, bruised, but perhaps a little wiser. It wasn't like that at all. I mean, it was nothing comparable to, say, what happened in Germany for their World Cup in 2006, in the sense of a whole country going, yeah, this is great, you know, let's, this or team even France is great. 98. France, exactly, France 98. I, I just use the example of Germany 2006 because I was there and I can compare oh, yeah. what it was like in Germany to what it was like in France during the Euros. There was really no comparison. But we do have a situation now where they have, when you look at the players, they've got the best international team in the world. There's every chance that next summer they could be winning the World Cup in Moscow and going up to get the trophy from President Le Pen and President... Uh, Vladimir Putin, and what a bizarre scene uh, that's going to be if it happens, uh, if it does happen to unfold that way. All right, let's wrap things up on that Netflix recommendation. The name again, Kenneth. Les Bleus, une autre histoire de France.
Some interesting happenings in La Liga over the weekend. Real Madrid drew in the Madrid derby, which seemed to open the door a little bit for Barcelona. But a 2-0 defeat to Malaga was a bit of a disaster for them. They're losing three points behind now with a game extra played. Dermot Cargan, how did Barca manage to screw this up? Hi guys, yeah, yeah. I was at the Bernabeu on, on Saturday and there was a real feeling that Madrid had let it slip, that Madrid were in trouble. Even Zidane, after the game, talked about two points dropped and said he was disappointed with how it had gone and the feeling that it had swung towards Barca because you know, they just had to go to Malaga and, and win and Malaga haven't been doing well lately. But Barca played really, really badly at, at Malaga Saturday evening. Luis Enrique made a lot of, of changes to his team, brought in guys like Matthew and Andre Gomez and Dennis Suarez who, who played really badly. Neymar got sent off. And Malaga were much better, you know. Malaga easily deserved to win two nil, and now Madrid are, are back on again. It swung, it swung back around again, and Madrid are big favourites for the title. Just back to Barca, um, Dermot. The, I, I would have assumed that Neymar w- will have seen the international ban that his club teammate got <laughs> a couple of weeks back for having a go at a, fo- at a fourth official or a linesman, or wherever it was. Uh, didn't look like he learned a huge amount, so he gets sent off yesterday. Then has a little bit of a sarcastic applause at a fourth official, and and this could be quite costly for him and the team. Yeah, it was a weird sending off because the the first one that he got was for for tying his boots in front of a Malaga player who was trying to take a free kick, and the ref said that he was he was trying to hold up the play. That brought the spotlight back because the last three games, I think, in a row now, he's had to change his boots during the game. There's speculation that it's to do with his Nike are very happy that he leans over and shows his boots and all the cameras show the boots before, during the games. His ill-fitting boots. Nike are delighted that he has to change his boots apparently every five minutes. That he has new boots and that the the pictures of the new boots are are shown live during the games. I I don't know for sure, but it's something, it was an issue before the game that Luis Enrique was asked about it before the game. Then he gets booked during it. And there is a feeling at Barca that even though they won that that game against PSG, that they're a little bit demob happy with, with Luis Enrique going, that he doesn't have full control over everybody at it, that Neymar plays really well. Then the game, he played really well against PSG. The game after that, he missed, apparently because he was going to his, his sister's birthday party. He seems to be a little bit that he can do what he wants, that the dressing was run a, a little bit away from them. And that shows that, you know, in a big game, you know, they could go to the Bernabeu and beat um, beat Madrid in a few weeks' time. They could beat Juventus in these games that are coming up now. But they keep dropping points against Alavis. That's the second time they've dropped points against Malaga this season. And just a feeling that their their focus wavers when it when it shouldn't, and that that's going to cost them. Yeah, and it certainly seems to be costing them. And did this kind of slip up? They lost, wasn't it, against Deportivo a few weeks ago? I watched the game against uh, the small team whose name now escapes me. Where they Leganes, Leganes, yeah, where they uh, they had they, they struggled badly before Messi eventually and he slam home a penalty in that game. These are strange. It's been a strange season for Barcelona, even in the glorious Champions League moment against Paris Saint-Germain. The only reason they needed to do that was because they had blown it so spectacularly in the in the first leg. Is there just a, a lack of consistency at the centre of what they're doing this year? Yeah, I think there's a kind of a lack of... It's a kind of rudderless feeling at the club. It's in a bit of a drift. Like The the board you know, with, have had all their legal problems over the years. The transfers haven't been good in the last couple of seasons. Like The players who, who have come in to replace you know, Xavi and Iniesta's getting on, 
they haven't really been replaced. Even Puyol at the back, you know, that that great generation of players like Puyol and Javi that were kind of the leaders in the dressing, the leaders of the club, really. They they're not there anymore, and there is a feeling that if Messi doesn't do something in a game, or if Suarez doesn't do something in a game, that the the, the team are going to lose. And it's fine, you know, for the big games when, as I say, that you know they're really motivated and they're really up for it. But th- there's nobody really driving them along. Luis Enrique did that in, in the first season that he was there. That was really evident. You know, you could see that the the hunger was there, the the work rate was there in all the games. This year, it's it's not so much, and it, I would put it down more. Not so much to Luis Enrique, really, but just to the fact that the the board have just done a, a really bad job. There's not a good relationship between the dressing room and the board, and that kind of that kind of atmosphere within a club or that kind of rudderless sensation within a club is something that you see in games like at the weekend or that Deportivo game where the focus is not right for for every game as it has to be if you're going to win the league. Well, I mean, I think so, you know these players to a certain extent have to also be blamed for that. You're talking about not just seeing your players in a Barcelona context, but in a world context. I mean, players who are hailed as the best in the world. Is it Messi? Is it, is it Neymar? You know, Suarez scores more goals than any of than even these guys. Um, so if they're not performing, I, I, I just find it difficult when you've got players on that level to turn around and point the finger at a guy who's not in the field and say, Luis Enrique, once again, this is your fault. Yeah, I guess you, you could say that, you know, it's up to, to Messi to, to do it in every game. It kind of happens at clubs after a while, though, that, you know, you've had so much success and, and Messi's been going for whatever it is, 700 games for, for Barcelona. You can't do it every week. That When the structure is not there or, or things are not right behind the scenes, the players don't perform to, to their best. You can blame, you could say that the blame is shared or that the players should have a better focus or whatever, but it happens at, at other clubs. It happens at Madrid. You can see when things go off the boil a little bit there as well, and it's something that... That I don't know though. I can't. I can't remember Dermot. For instance, the last time Cristiano Ronaldo was sent off for acting maggot in a, you know at one nil in a game that his team went on to lose two nil, a really important game in a title race. And, you know when when has that happened? Ronaldo's been sent off for for hitting opponents a couple of times. He sent off against Athletic Bilbao a couple of years ago in a game that they they dropped points in. But I, I take your point that Ronaldo is is as professional as it could, as he can possibly get, and he's. That he's kind of unique in the way that he he puts his focus into it. Um, Neymar's not not the same, you know. He's he's a guy who who has had problems. He's had his his issues off the pitch in Barcelona with the the court cases that are still going on with Brazil. He's lost the rag in, in big games as well. He's still he's still twenty three, I think, or or maybe twenty four now, and he's a, he's a younger guy and. There doesn't seem to be anybody at the club who is able to to put him on the straight and narrow. Maybe Suarez is the the closest to that, but. Yeah, like I'd agree that Neymar doesn't show the, the same professionalism as Ronaldo does in the games, but that's something that, that, that Barca have to deal with and they're not dealing with it very well. Well, I, I mean, one possible excuse that you can think of is, is maybe they were just thinking about this game they're going to have to play tomorrow night. They're, they're away to Juventus tomorrow in the Champions League quarterfinal. Um, you know, this is going to be a difficult game. Nobody can really fancy Barcelona too strongly when you see them play like they did against Malaga. Do you think they're maybe holding a vast amount of stuff in reserve that they can go to Juventus and say, you know, you're going to see the real Barcelona tonight, or you know, it's difficult to imagine how a team can just turn it on and off like that. I have to say I find it very difficult to fancy Barcelona's chances tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with you. I'd say that the, what happened in the first leg in Paris is probably more of a of a pointer for what's going to happen in Turin tomorrow night because Barca have, have been very up and down this season and in some of the games, if their focus is not quite there or if they're not quite at it, then then the best teams, whether it's um, 
like like Paris Saint Germain were able to do, the, the teams who are really well organised, as you, you assume Juventus will be, will be able to to pick them apart. It will come down, I, I would guess, to, to somebody like Messi or Neymar pulling out a bit of magic over the over the two legs. If Barca are going to go through, um, it'll it will be down to, to an individual doing something rather than a better organised team or, or man for man being better because there are there are holes in the Barca squad. There's holes in the Barca team. Iniesta's you know getting on a bit, and there's nobody really there in the midfield. So. Yeah, I, you know, if you were a Barca fan, you'd be pretty worried about what might happen against Juventus. All right, we'll see. Listen, Dermot, brilliant stuff. Thanks a mil. Cheers, guys. He agrees with plenty. Just it's always who's saying it. It's never what's actually said. 90% of anything is who's saying this, and 10% is what are they actually saying. So the 90% in Giles' case is, oh, it's that twat. John is the best football brain in the world. If I could be that guy instead of me. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. I'd never let you do. I'd never let you down. But if you're talking about the, the, the press, which you're talking about, have this uh, opinion of Guardiola, it doesn't necessarily mean that football people have. Yeah, I, I think I do like Ken Early's work. He writes fluently and thinks uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong. The press come and go, as we know. You mentioned Ken Early. Well, yeah. you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, what can you, what can you do? Can you please everyone. A thought popped into my head there, Ken, when you were reacting to the Neymar boot. Uh, display oh, yeah. display of his football boots uh, didn't you write a piece about Neymar being a 21st century YouTube footballer many moons ago oh god that's a good one yeah yeah well uh, you, you got that right he's, he's still at it but I want to move on to talk about Leo Messi and his diet which I believe is making some splashes is it his diet it's certainly his physical well um, his physical well, he's, capabilities he's obviously headed, headed back to the north of Italy um, to play against Juventus but it's a part of the world that he visits with reasonable regularity, uh, oftentimes to speak to his nutritionist or is he a kinesiologist. Well, you know, maybe a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. Uh, Giuliano Poser is the name of the guy who first um, started working with Messi in the 2014-15 season, which you might recall Messi had a difficult first half of the season then came roaring back in unbelievable form and won the Champions League and... Uh, the treble, in fact, uh, in 2015 with Barcelona. And a lot of the improvement was attributed to his uh, superior fitness, which had, uh, well, which had a lot to do with these trips that he was taking to northern Italy to meet with this nutritionist. Uh, he even cried tears of frustration. Uh, this is the nutritionist who's talking to um, Corriere della Sera. Um, just last week. This was when he told Messi that he couldn't eat the breaded chicken with cheese. That was his favorite food. But now he's accepted it. He says, there's no unique formula in kinesiology. Only through testing we can see how food intake affects each and every muscle in the body. Um, so he basically, it's like, okay, I remember that when this happened the last time, it was like Messi had underwent this sudden dramatic improvement. He's, he was thinner, stronger, faster, more energetic, scoring loads of goals. This is a guy who had looked at, like, oh, every time he steps in the pitch, his hamstring is going to pop. You know, it was just an amazing sudden turnaround. And you're like, wow, what, what is the secret that this guy has um, 
Well, basically, it's just getting them off junk food. We live in a time when foods contain too many contaminants that can be seen in energy levels when measuring resistance and recovery, says Julian Poser. <laughs> he says, uh, you, you, you don't become a professional player and still even less a phenomenon like Messi just for the things you eat. But uh, if you want to be top, this is what you do. I'm simply making fine adjustments to a powerful supercar by encouraging the use of organic food, raw grains, seasonal fruits and vegetables, extra virgin olive oil, eggs, and fresh fish. It's as simple as that, Owen. It is as simple. No, it often is more simple than you expect. You know, you just have to make, dare I say, marginal gains. Marginal gains all over the place. That, that list again, that secret list of X-Factor ingredients, organic food, raw grains, seasonal fruits and vegetables, extra virgin olive oil, eggs, fresh fish. Uh, so if you want to liberate your inner, it'll mess you. That's what you, uh, that's what you eat. Byron, Dortmund, uh, well, Byron and Dortmund are both going into big Champions League games this week and they went head-to-head at the weekend. We have got Raphael Honigstein who wrote a little bit about Arjan Robin's special move, um, Raphael, where, which he executed yet again this weekend. Everyone knows what I'm talking about before I even say it. Cutting inside off the right, curling in a left-footed shot. He does this all the time. Everybody knows he's going to do it. Nobody seems to be able to stop him. Arsenal in particular this year got a bit of bit of grief for allowing him to do this. I see that you were trying to break this down in sort of scientific terms. Do you think you managed to shed any light on the subject? <laughs> I don't know. We let the readers judge. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is uh, a Dutch study that was actually made a few years ago where um, someone in sports science looked at uh, the Robin move in particular, but was really trying to make a bigger point, which is the the way that your your mind works and your anticipation of something doesn't necessarily mean that you're still able to react to somebody who's quicker than you. So you know that the move is coming, but you don't know where it's coming. And by the time you react to the penultimate move, which is the, the one that doesn't go inside, but actually takes you the wrong way, you then just cannot switch back quickly enough because he is always that little bit quicker. And that, that is one of the explanations put forward why, as you said, everybody knows, but it still doesn't seem to be able to, to do anything much about it. I mean, in the big picture, the match seemed very easy for Bayern. I mean, I know the timing was maybe a bit awkward uh, coming just before the Champions League quarterfinals, but still 4-1 at this uh, point in the season has got to be a disappointing result for Dortmund. Yeah, it was very disappointing. I mean, there wasn't much to play for in terms of points and real significance in the table. I think both uh, Bayern and Dortmund would have preferred to, to play each other on another day. And I, I thought it might descend to a bit of a friendly. But the opposite happened. And I think the reason for that is that Dortmund just weren't quite ready for this game. They were 2-0 down with nine minutes on the clock. And you could see that the inexperience and, and the lack of one or two key players like Julian Weiger, for example, uh, Dortmund have neither the depth in the squad nor the, I think, the personality makeup as far as an experienced side is concerned to, to deal with a situation like that. And they are still a team in transition. They are still a team in, in development. And uh, Thomas Tuchel was making a point before the game that he was looking to see what kind of reaction Dortmund would show. And I guess the, the reaction was or the the conclusion was that they're not quite ready yet. And, uh, you know, the, this new team that is building after the departure of Gunnuan, Ritarin and Hummels has a lot of footballing quality, but they, what they don't have is, I think, that togetherness and that, that kind of um, confidence that comes from being around each other for a long, long time. And Bayern are the total contrast. You know, they're much older. 
they're a team that know exactly what, what's necessary. They've hit peak form at the right time. And uh, the difference was just too vast, uh, both in individual quality, but also in the terms of the two teams kind of presented themselves in Munich. It seems as though uh, Carlo Ancelotti has got things ticking over quite nicely. I, there was a, a nice moment in the game where Frank Ribery came off. And not for the first time this season, a, a senior Bayern player was complaining uh, about being taken off and actually d- decided to say this to Ancelotti in front of, you know, 60,000 people uh, on the sideline. And Ancelotti dealt with it sort of masterfully. He just he basically treated Ribery like the big baby he was acting like and sort of gave him a, a slap in the cheek and a little hug. And suddenly everything seemed to be okay again. It seems that uh, he's babysitting these egos um, very adeptly. Yeah, a kiss on the cheek even, not, 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 not a slap. But um, I, I'm not sure about that team because I and Robin later suggested that Ruby was actually playing up and just pretending to be really, really angry. And there was a bit of a joke between the two of them. But you are right. I mean, there have been uh, incidents of petulance when Robin has come off and Ruby has come off. The thing is that Ancelotti deals with it so coolly and calmly, just makes no issue out of it. Then it's hard to for the media and everybody else to make an issue out of it. He just kind of waves it away. He's looked like a man who, you know, wouldn't care if, if an atomic bomb went off next door to him. He's just so, so calm. Uh, has seen it all before a million times. Has worked with the biggest egos, both at club level and also in the team. And just doesn't seem to, to care very much. And I think his, his hands-off approach in terms of man management took a bit of a while to, to, to get going properly. And there were some rumours and some some parts of the team that were a little bit unhappy with the leeway that was given to certain players, you know, when certain players start perhaps reacting to that uh, to that style of management by seeing it as a bit of a weakness and taking liberties, then the other half get very, very annoyed because they think, you know, we are keeping to the rules, why, why don't they apply to others? But I think it seems to have settled down and now that uh, the Champions League target, which is the big target for Bayern, is so close, I think that professionalism that has always existed in this team for a few last few years has kicked in, and Ancelotti doesn't really have to do very much apart from keeping everybody happy, which he does very well. You mentioned the issue of, of Dortmund's uh, lack of depth, which is something that I suppose they are trying to um, you know, resolve, and at least Bayern aren't going to be directly uh, damaging them on that front if Karl-Heinz Rummenigge is you know, statement, we haven't contacted any Dortmund players and we don't intend to, um, if, if that's to be taken seriously. But I noticed that uh, uh, just during the week they managed to confirm another deal. Uh, this is for Mahmoud Dahoud, uh, a young midfielder, and he's the latest in a long line of uh, very promising young players from around Europe who have decided to go to Dortmund um, when they had offers to, I guess, probably earn more money in English football, although I don't know that for sure. What is it about Dortmund that seems to make them such an irresistible attraction to these, uh, you know, twenty-year-old prodigies? Yeah, well, I think they've created an identity for themselves, which which suggests that if you are between eighteen and twenty-one and you've already played at a decent level, you want to go to the next level. You want to be in the Champions League uh, consistently. You want to be surrounded by top players and grow. Uh, we are the right team for you. Also, in combination with the kind of managers that we have, who really take a, take an interest in developing players. I mean, Tuchel is a great example for that. So, I think that is something that, uh, for the for the better advice players out there, 
is very, very, very tempting. I mean, Dembele could have gone, uh, you know, Usman Dembele could have gone to Bayern, he could have gone to Real Madrid, but I doubt that we would have seen much of him uh, over the last season. Uh, but at Dortmund, he's become a regular and he's, he's already on, you know, on the verge of becoming, maybe not a superstar, but, you know, one of the hottest, hottest young players in, in Europe. And I think other other players look at that and they understand that Dortmund creates, uh, it provides a u- unique opportunity to grow, but grow in an environment where there's 75, 80,000 people turning up every Saturday uh, and you're in the Champions League and that's a, that's a decent package. I think with the, the thing with the Premier League is interesting because um, it's been suggested to me from a number of, of different uh, sources that some Premier League teams are really struggling to, to attract that kind of player to the league because A, they have a hard time promising Champions League it's almost impossible to say, you know, you're definitely going to be in the Champions League for these big sides. B, the combination of, you know, the style of football that's being played at some of, the, some of these teams, uh, some of the managers who don't really take an interest in, in young players, and uh, the fact that there's no winter break, etc., make it very, very, they make it a real tough decision for somebody like Dahoud to say, you know, should I really go now to the Premier League or should I, should I go to Dortmund where... For two, three years, I know I'm going to play, and uh, Dortmund have created that niche for them. Um, the question is, can they now get out of that niche and get to the next level? I think that's going to be the bigger question for them. But as far as the players is concerned, I mean that is one of the best places to be for if you're that kind of age group. Can they get to the next level of the Champions League this year? They're at home to Monaco in the first leg, and Bayern are at home to Real Madrid in a, in a glamour tie. I suppose uh, the cliche goes, Rafael. A quick, quick word on those two games. Well, Dortmund uh, Monaco is going to be a, a slugfest of, uh, I think, of spectacular attacking football with young players who don't really know that much about defending. So it should be should be superb. I think at home Dortmund have a great chance of actually going through and, and, and knocking them out. Maybe even that in, in the first leg. Um, as far as Bayern Real Madrid is concerned, I mean, it's a it's a fifty fifty uh, toss up really. I think Bayern are in better shape than they were three years ago when they got knocked out five 0 on aggregate. But uh, Real Madrid can still. Uh, win competitions, win the Champions League when they're not even that convincing as we saw last year, maybe three years before. So, I don't know. I think Bayern have a decent chance. I think they might just squeeze through, but it's going to be an almighty dust. Raphael Honigstein, thank you. Pleasure. Do you applaud this hands-off style of management that Carlo Ancelotti seems to have? Yeah. Man management. It's the way to do it. I think I think so. I think in certain, in certain contexts, uh, I think it's very suited to the type of clubs he works at. Uh, which is to say, the biggest ones. It's slightly easier to keep your hands off the some of the greatest players in Europe <laughs> and the world than it might be at a poor team where you might need to be a bit, bit more interventionist. Yeah, but uh, you know, we, I mean, we were talking earlier about Mourinho and, and Ancelotti's in many ways the opposite. Like he's not going to start a fight with a player, you know, out out of nothing. He ne- he never does that. Or Van Hal, he's not going to overburden them necessarily with with. Tactical instruction? No, he's not to the point that they'll freeze on a pitch. He's he, he likes he's more holistic. Yeah, well, he's like, look, I'm not going to tell you how to play football. <laughs> I mean, I've I've got an idea of how I think we should play. I mean, Ancelotti says basically his favorite formation is like, you know, basically four four two. He'd played in that type of formation when he was uh, when he was a player, but you know, he's prepared to basically go differently depending on who is at the club or who the president tells him to pick. You know, he's prepared to. To roll with all those punches, um, which is why maybe after a couple of years things do tend to start drifting a little bit. 
But when he takes over from somebody like Mourinho or Guardiola, which he has been lucky enough to do uh, in his last two jobs, um, he's able, I think, to keep a to keep a machine that's already kind of been set up running and maybe get get a little bit more out of it. You know, if the, the fact that the players, there, there's already a, a clear structure to the team. People already know their jobs. Um, but now they can maybe do it with a little bit more freedom and license. Um, and there's, a, there's a, usually a good season or two in there before they start taking too much freedom and license. The whole thing descends into degeneracy and decadence. And they have to sack Ancelotti. And, you know, he heads back off to Vancouver and hangs out there for a while before uh, taking his next super job. We've got another show for you today, which is going to feature Sergio Garcia's win at the Masters and Kerry beating Dublin. A huge weekend to talk about there. That show will be available for all. But it's only Monday. There's a lot of time left in the week for way more podcasting. So if you feel like listening to daily Second Captain shows and you haven't already signed up to the World Service, you can check out details there on secondcaptains.com. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Em. Thanks so much for listening. We'll chat to you soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. 